Yeah, so, I mean, we have an international audience, and just before geography, I always like to ask our guests where they were born and raised. Well, first of all, Dambi, thank you for allowing me the opportunity to, to talk to your, your fan base and, and your subscribers. Uh, uh, I was born in a little small town in Alabama in the U.S., huh? uh, Gaston, Alabama, in the deep, deep south. Uh, back in the, the 50s, 1952, I just literally on January 9th, celebrated my 70th birthday. Wow, uh, And so I grew up during the heart of segregation uh, with uh, our governor, George Wallace, who uh, yeah. is fairly uh, uh, well-known for being a segregationist. Uh, and it was tough times. I uh, integrated. I didn't go to black schools. Uh, I only went to white schools, really. And, and that was very, very, very tough. Um, we're talking the 50s and 60s. So wow. uh, that's my humble beginnings in a little small rural town. Uh, we had a dirt road that uh, one of our homes, uh, my first home, uh, with an outhouse uh, that, that they called in the, in the day. So it was a very rural uh, community in, in Alabama when I first uh, as I was growing up, it changed, but yeah. uh, in the very beginning. How far is that from Selma, Alabama? You know, um, it's a uh, two, uh, I see two and a half hour drive. Um, okay. But my mother grew up in Marion, Alabama, which is literally eight miles away uh, okay. from Selma. Uh, the correlation between Marion is, is many. My mother went to high school with Coretta King. Uh, wow. Also, Andrew Young's wife also was in that class uh, wow. because of the distance from Marion yeah. to Stelma. I'm sure that's where uh, Dr. King met his wife. Uh, yeah. And so when my mother left Marion, Alabama and went to Gaston, Alabama, she continued a torch of uh, uh, integration and desegregation. Wow. And the reason I asked, because I, I, I um, even though I was born in the UK, I went to college in Selma, Concordia College in Selma, Alabama, and um, in 92. And I didn't, what was a surprise to me when I moved there was that Mayor Smitherman, who was the mayor during the March in 69, was still the mayor when I went there in 92. And when I heard wow. that, yeah, he that's, was still mayor. That's amazing. Yeah, he was still mayor up to, I think, 95. And then he, yeah, so it, I, just uh, that history, and I, and I tell everyone I spent ten years in the U.S., but I, I loved this Alabama because I felt that, um, and I and I, experiences are different, but I felt that I felt compared to when I moved to the Midwest, and that, that I felt more the genuine sort of hospitality of of being in the South compared to when I was in the Midwest, where I never understood how people felt about me. Um, yeah, the the thing about the South is that they're blatantly blatantly honest. Uh, yeah, transparent, was, uh, yeah. but just have big hearts uh, yeah. and warmth and love that they share to a fellow man. Uh, yeah. And Alabama has changed tremendously from the times I grew up as a kid. Uh, yeah. You know, the times of having colored and white uh, water fountains and bathrooms wow. and sitting rooms and restaurants you couldn't go inside of. Um, it's changed drastically. Uh, I haven't been to uh, Marion in many, many years, uh, but I'm going to make a point uh, 
this year or next to go to Marion. And I certainly go to Selma because again, it's all across the bridge there, you into Marion. Yeah. Uh, so it's not far at all. So, I mean, oh, I think what is interesting for, for those of us who are inter from international, um, who would have only watched the sort of things like segregation on TV and, and films, when you're that young and seeing that, what does that do for your sort of career aspirations and vision as to what you want to be when what you're seeing is pretty much because of your color of your skin, you're in your own country regarded as second class? How does that change how you saw your future? Yeah, it's a very good question, Wendy, because fortunately for me, I had great parents um, who instilled in me to always dream uh, who instilled in me to be the very best. Uh, and that experience of being the only Black in some cases or one of the few Blacks in school um, actually was very challenging. A lot of battle scars around that had to go to therapy actually for the trauma that for many years. But it also gave me a sense of I could accomplish uh, regardless of the circumstances, if I worked hard uh, and, and, and built relationships, uh, it also allowed me to understand a culture uh, because I think each, when we look at race, and especially in America, but all over the world, culturally we're different. Uh, and, and how we approach problem solv solving, um, yeah. how we approach family, how we approach music culturally is different. Yeah. Uh, and I, I got a sense of white culture by going to these schools that actually became a benefit to me later on in corporate America and as an entrepreneur of understanding white culture uh, because that's mainly who I interface more with. Uh, and, and since then, I'm, I'm making a point to understand Asian uh, culture, uh, to understand African culture, although that there's so many different tribes of Africa, Africa yeah. uh, makes it somewhat difficult sometimes, but a general sense. Um, but that really instilled that confidence, that understanding of culture, understanding of self uh, by being in a situation. And they were tough. I've been beaten, I've been wow. spit on, I've been electric prodded um, wow. in demonstrations. Uh, so, and many, 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 many other people that you would never know the names of uh, yeah. that put in some serious sacrifices so that you and I could have this opportunity to have this conversation today. Yeah, as I said, many of us um, would not understand it. And, and I think the one thing I realized when I moved to the States is that some of the, the kids that I went to college with, they had the stories of their parents and their grandparents still fresh. So it meant that they had a very different outlook um, to society than I did. Because I, you know, even though I was born in the UK, but I, I, I knew my heritage back in Nigeria and my grandparents. And so I, I, I went with a sense of identity. And, and I noticed in college, some of, the, some of my classmates would say, you know what, we're not going to make it because segregation and all the stuff is hidden and still there and I couldn't see the same thing but I was able to as later on become more empathetic to understand that if my dad was telling me all these stories and my grandparents 
I might still think it's so so live and fresh. But then I do wonder then how do you remain focused, you know, to to finish school uh, and then even think about college in the midst of how things had been. Well, you know, two things. One thing that you said that really uh, resonated to me is your friend saying that you're not going to make it because. Yeah. And a lot of us, a lot of people that's, that's watching right now, be mindful that if you believe that you're not going to make it because, and we can fill in the blank because, because I'm yeah. Black, because I'm poor, whatever the because is, there's a, probably a significant chance that you're not going to make it. The brain is very, very powerful. And if you program it that you're not going to make it, it would give you information out that you're not going to make. So it really starts with believing in oneself and understanding what is the passion. That's the key word for me, uh, that fuels us, that yeah. allows us to have those work ethics because we love what we're doing in a very strong, powerful way. So it's finding out that passion. And for me, I, I became... Uh, a basketball star. And, and oh. so, uh, you know, when I was at junior high school, uh, it was six black kids, and it was about a thousand white kids. And the, <laughs> the basketball coach, because I was tall, just and black, just assumed <laughs> he can play basketball. Well, I couldn't play basketball. I was the kid, I was the kid, Namdi, that was the last picked on the team always. Uh, I was, not coordinated. I was, gosh, I was so skinny. I was so skinny. Uh, <laughs> and so I was the last to make the team. And, but I continued to work at it and work at it and work at it. And then I began to really enjoy and love it. So sometimes when we're exposed to something new, um, we might find out that we really, we really love it. And, and then I began to work harder and got older and more coordinated and continue to work hard and became a basketball star by the time I was a senior in high school and had many scholarships to college wow. and wow. actually went to the University of Tennessee, where again, I played another role of integrating the University of Tennessee, the Chattanooga branch. Um, so that's how I got to college, was having these scholarships. My parents uh, were, were poor. They would not have had the finances to pay for me to go to college, but I was fortunate to have many, many opportunities to go to college and took advantage of that. Wow. So during that time then, um, and I, I think part, partly just getting a sense of music um, uh, that was around, what, what kind of music were you listening to and, and sort of uh, inspired by? Well, my dad, my dad was about 6'4", and he weighed about 400 pounds. He was a, wow. and, and very little fat, just real muscle. Um, you would think he couldn't dance, but he was an amazing dancer. Wow. And so, as in most Black families in the South on Sundays, uh, we had Sunday dinner. Um, and after dinner, my mom and dad would go into the living room. Uh, which was forbidden for us kids. They had plastic <laughs> on the, the plastic on the sofas, and the, you know, you no way would you 
able to go in the living room. And, and, and also in a dining room, near the dining room table, is they had a record player. And my dad, he loves blues. He loved it. He loved R&B. And he would ask me to play, put on the music while he danced. And, and this, then we had vinyl. And the vinyl, they were old, and they had scratches in them. And he would give me a nickel, a dime, and a quarter to put on top of the needle because wow. he would get annoyed if it was a scratch while he was dancing and get him wow. off beat, he would get really annoyed. So in that process, it allowed me to begin to understand playlists and to understand the mood of my dad. Was he happy today, was he down? To the kind of, and at a certain point, he trusted me just to play the music. Uh, and so I began to uh, play all sorts of music. He, again, he loved jazz, he loved gospel, he loved R&B. He actually loved country. And, and, wow. and a lot of people back in those days, blacks in the South loved country music as well. Uh, but, you know, when I look back, I was a DJ. Uh -huh. And I had my own playlist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Who, um, so, but when you got to college, so thinking about the, in, in the college times, did you then, when you had your, when you were a little bit more independent, what music then did you start to listen to and, and, um. I, yeah, I, when I got to college, I, there was two genres that I listened to. I listened to jazz and I listened to R&B and rap music just came into the fray and so it was just starting up but a lot of jazz a lot of R&B and we had so many great artists in R&B back then and so many great groups you know OJs you know Earth Wind and Fire I can go on and on Four Tops and all the girl groups and it was so much quality music back then uh, and a friend of mine is a fraternity brother he was a general manager of uh, a college radio station and used to hang out there. And uh, we used to sit back and, and say one day, he would say, I'm going to put together the greatest girl group ever. And I'll <laughs> say, no, man, I'm going to put together the greatest group, <laughs> girl group ever. What are you talking about? So he went on. Seriously, that's why I say the brain is so powerful. This is in 1973. We're talking about, we're going to put it together, the greatest girl groups ever. He went on to found and put together En Vogue. And I what? went on to find and put together Destiny's Child. Oh. <laughs> David Lombard. David okay. Lombard is his name. Wow. But why girl groups at that time then? Because... Apart from the Supremes and and and, and but there was, were there not many girl groups that you uh, thought about girl groups? The girl uh, groups in general were the norm back then. You had okay so many so many girl groups and so many Patty Labelle, the Labelles. I mean, oh, you, yeah, you, yeah. you could go on and on. And we used to play even even uh, with with uh, the kids. I used to we used to play games of who can name the most groups. And even now, I mean. About a year ago, I played that game. Who can name? It was about 40 guy bands and about girl, uh, boy bands and about 27 girl groups. I mean, it's like lots and lots of 
Wow. In the 70s. 70s, I think, for me, was the best era of music uh, in America. Okay. More so than the Motown times of the 60s? Yes. The, the Motown spilled over into the 70s. Uh, yeah. So they were part of that 70s. Uh, but you had all of these other really major bands and uh, dance okay. music was dance music was coming into the fray as well. Um, and, and it was just plentiful. Any given evening, I went to school at the University of Tennessee, but then I transferred my junior year and went to Fisk in Nashville, Tennessee. And wow. that's, you know, that's Music City is the tagline for Nashville. Any night in Nashville, you can go to 10, 15, 20 bars, restaurants with live music. Probably more than that any given night if you had the time. Uh, so yeah. music has always been a mainstay in my life. Uh, I've always had a love, significant love for music. But then when, when you were, so you go to fix, what were you thinking that you wanted to do after college? You know, I always knew, even when I was a kid. Uh, you know, as a kid, my parents, although they, they had daytime jobs, uh, my mom was a colored maid. My mom made $3 a day as a colored maid. My dad was a truck driver. He made $30 a week. Uh, but he convinced the people he worked for to use the truck and would tear down all the houses and sell all the materials, the wood, the copper. My mother, as a colored maid, was uh, get the white woman she worked for to give her all the hand-me-down clothes, ask her to ask her neighbors. And then on the weekend, my mother would make these beautiful quilts with two of her best friends. Uh, but they always instilled that my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My Parents were entrepreneurs. Uh, entrepreneurship has been a part of our family heritage. Uh, wow. And so they always instilled in me entrepreneurship. So they even so when you were in college, they, in your mind, you were thinking, okay, I'm not going to go to get a nine to five. You were still thinking about the girl group or, or, or was that a vision that you were seeing and you were aiming to yeah. In, in college, yeah, we used to sit and think about it. After college, then I uh, knew that I wanted to be a businessman in entrepreneurship. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in business administration and, yeah. and economics. Uh, so I took the role and the route of sales and marketing. Um, okay. and, and then, you know, as, as you know, I'm a college professor. Uh, yeah. Most people aren't aware that there's two terms. There's entrepreneurship and there's intra, intrapreneurship. Intrapreneurship is when you run an organization, uh, you work inside of an organization, but you want run your department of your territory. You run it as if you own it. It's a headset that comes with entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. It's a way you think about things uh, and you take ownership of it as if it's yours. And so I went into sales and marketing and did corporate America for 20 years and was extremely successful at it uh, and took a lot of skills. And I always say that 
Uh, my first job in corporate America, corporate America was with Xerox Corporation in the 70s and 80s when they were like the top corporation to work in, especially for Blacks. But the skills that I learned, I always say skills are transferable. I mm. transferred those skills when I was in the beauty business, when I was in the apparel business with House of Darion and Darion, when I was in a music business, and now I'm in the film and TV business. Uh, I transferred those skills. Now, I have to understand the culture of the organization because uh, every organization has its own culture, their definitions, the way people dress, the way people speak. And it's important that we learn the culture as, as also, but it's also important that we get the knowledge because the yeah. knowledge is power. So you had no well, idea this interview because you thought I was just Beyonce dad. No, no, no. You know, uh, 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 most people do them. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that sets me uh, me apart is that I focus on the journey of the uh, who I'm. Even if you, even if you were part of say Jodice's stuff, I don't focus on the music as much as the journey because that's the the parts that we never get to hear and that we can actually learn from. Because what I wanted to find out was the experience you had in in the in the deep south with the segregation, and you're now working in, in corporate America, others might start to, uh, if they had any disagreements, they could start to see the same colored lines in, 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 in their work. But how were you able to, because you did mention that you started to learn and, and culture and use it for, to form relationships. And I think that's one of the most powerful thing I heard was about, you said about learning the culture to, to, to network and, and relationships. But it, was it as, how easy was that? to not feel scarred and not feel bitter and to take that sense of, well, I'm going to work with you for my long-term benefit. Well, because again, I grew up going to white schools, right? So yeah. I, I understood white culture. Um, you know, I'm very open about black, white, and various cultures. A lot of people like to use words that disguise it. I'm not, I'm just plain and simple. There's a difference in black and white. Uh, in, our, in our cultures. Uh, and I, I learned a lot of that growing up in Alabama. Uh, but I'll use an example. So I, uh, how I got my job at Xerox is really interesting because, you know, back then on, on Fridays, uh, a bunch of guys that were working, um, and I was working at a Pitney Bowles a company that sold milling equipment. And we were just having happy hour. That was a big thing on Friday bunch of guys get together, have cocktails. And there was a guy sitting next to our table listening the whole time. We didn't know it. Lesson one, you never know who's listening, right? Lesson one. So he comes over and he says, man, I have a word with you. Pick me out of about 12 guys. And he says, I've been listening to you guys and I'm really, really fascinated. He says, but I'm really fascinated by you listening to you and your leadership and how you're communicating, I'd like to offer you a job at Xerox. Wow. Well, that would be like getting somebody saying, I'm giving you a record deal at Sony. <laughs> you know, wow. you're like, what? Huh? <laughs> yeah. so, so I got that position and did very well selling copiers, which Xerox was noted for. 
but there was a position that came became available in the medical division of Xerox. Now, this was the elite, all-white, affluent division of Xerox. We're talking early, as a matter of fact, 1980. And, you know, people there were making two, three hundred thousand dollars a year wow. in 1980. And they were selling diagnostic imaging equipment. Oh, yeah. So I went to the branch manager and I said, may I interview for that position? Because uh, I found out about it. He laughed. He was like, oh, go ahead, Nose. Uh, you, you know, it'd be great experience for you. <laughs> great experience for you. And I said, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> a month later, I interviewed and I got the job and nobody could believe it. Well, in that year and a half, I had been the top sales rep every quarter, but that's not why. Everyone else that interviewed went in their interview talking about, well, I've been at Xerox 15 years. I've been at Xerox 20 years. What I did that was different, I went to the library for a month because the equipment that we sold was the leading modality for breast cancer detection called zero radiography. And what I did that none other did, that other candidates, I learned terminology, I learned the marketplace. So when I went in my interview, I wasn't talking about how great I was at Xerox because I'd only been there for a year and a half. I talked about the marketplace. And I talked about breast cancer. And that really impressed the, the manager. I mean, he hired me because of that. Wow. Yeah, they, you know, people talk about don't dress how you are, but dress how the, for how you want to be. And that sense of the vision. And, and, um, and, and, I, and I think that's the one th thing that um, people can use your, your trials you know, as a, as a battleground to learn how to overcome as opposed to saying, well, I'll never get it. So there's no point. Because um, when your manager said that, <laughs> go for the experience, is that what then said, well, let me do this? Or was that something that even if he had said you can do it, you'd still would have gone to the library, still would have done the study? Um, you know, you can have vision all day long. And you can have goals and dreams. If you don't put in the work, it's called a hobby. You know, a lot of people want to get in the music industry, but they don't want to learn. And they fail. 99% of people who try to get in the music industry, as you know, fail that because they don't want to put the work in. You know, if I told your listeners right now to go to uh, Point Blank Music School, which is a London school, but there's one in Los Angeles, but I teach it online. If I said to your listeners right now, less than 1% of 1%, would actually end up applying because they don't want to put the work in. And that's the number one reason for failure. People don't want to learn. They don't want to grow. They don't want to put the work in. So um, I believe that you have to have a passion first uh, yeah. and then you have to have a vision. But with passion come work ethics. You know, when you find someone who's passionate about something, they work hard at it because they love it. It's yeah. not work. It, what coexists with passion is work ethics. Uh, yeah. So that, and, and if I had a said when that, my manager said, you're not going to get it, it'd be great experience. I didn't allow my brain to say that. Yeah. I, I, I let him say it, but that brushed right off of me. 
I don't think that way. I don't think I can't. I don't focus on what I can't do. I focus on what I can do. And if I'm going to do it, I want to do it at an ex exceptional level. Not, and I tell everyone first day of class, um, if you want to just be good at it, don't come back. I say that every, I've been teaching now for 17 years. First day of class, regardless if it's entrepreneurship, music business, or sales marketing, I don't want anybody around me in my class that just want to be good. I just want people that want to be exceptional and great. That's the level that I work on all the time. I don't want to give you a good interview. I want at the end of this interview, people say, that's one of the best interviews I ever heard. Yeah. So you prepare. You prepare for them. You research who you're going to interview with. You research what the, 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 the goal of the, the, the programming, what the ethos is of the programming, so that you can understand it. You don't just show up for an interview. If yeah. you want to be great at it, you do if you just want to give a good interview. You just, oh, who's my next interview? <laughs> but yeah. if you want to be great, you do some research on it. You know, and, and, and that's, 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 that's an important lesson that, because um, naturally there's a lot of us who naturally have skills, athletes would naturally have skills, but you notice the ones who, like um, what separates, say, Michael Jordan from the rest is the, what you do behind the scenes and that sense of drive and work, not just showing up. And, um, and I think a lot of us sometimes think, oh, we've got the vision and, and we, we use our natural charismatic um, personality in the interview and we'll probably get it but then you wonder when somebody else comes in as you said and, and says look forget just my back what I've done before this is where we need to be going and 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 I think that's something that I really um would hope that we're all going to pick up from um did you then did you coming away from that then did you then still think you know after you were successful at Xerox were you comfortable or did you still have that sense of being my own boss eventually and outside of corporate America? So while I was at Xerox, um, and I was there for 10 years, from 78 to 88. Um, and in the medical division, I was there for eight years of those 10 years. In the medical division, I was fortunate enough in, in selling copiers, I was always excuse me, in Houston, one of the top salesmen every quarter, salesperson every quarter. Um, when I got to the medical division, I was fortunate to be uh, several years the number one sales rep worldwide. Wow. Uh, so imagine what that means, being the top sales rep worldwide. But during that period, my former wife, who's an amazing woman, Tina, um, you know, she had stayed at home and, and raised the kids, and she was bored of that. And I asked her one day what was her passion. And I knew the answer. She loved doing hair and making women beautiful. And I said, Tina, you go uh, to school and get your cosmetology license. When you graduate, you and I will start a hair salon. So around 83, we opened, wow. and I'm still at Xerox, so I'm at corporate America, but we also uh, opened a major hair salon that became the number one hair salon in Houston. We owned it for 17 years. But get this, uh, Namdi, in, uh, let's say, 1987, 
we made our first million dollars in 1987 uh, with that hair salon in Houston. Um, I mean, it was a major, at one point, we had a staff of 25 people. So we're talking a major operation. Um, so that was really my first major entree into entrepreneurship. You have to remember when I was a kid in elementary school, I sold candy, uh, went to a Catholic school, got in trouble with the nuns for doing that. Uh, when I was in junior high, I started a business, a salon service, me and two other kids mowing lawns. So mm -hmm. I always had that entrepreneurial spirit. Um, that again, generationally, like on the Knowles side of the family has been passed down. So now, and, and a lot of people might think, how do you then not get comfortable? Because if you, if you have a, a you, you know, you're still top sales executive at Xerox, now you've got a, 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 a family business that's generated over a million. How do you then not get comfortable saying, well, this is the good life and let's just relax and still press on for more? And, but not like you want more money, but just more success and more growth. Well, I, I think you have to understand the passion of the creative process was my former wife. Uh, I'm not a stylist. I'm not, you know, yeah. That's not my... My skill set is business on how to message, how to market, how to sell, how to come up with systems, uh, which is, again, transferable. I just transferred what I learned at Xerox into the hair salon. Uh, so it wasn't very difficult to me. Uh, I had the time because I covered five states in America. I covered Texas. Oklahoma, uh, uh, Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi. So it wasn't like a day job every day at an office. Yeah. Uh, you know, I worked out of my home. I had the flexibility of, of my time management. Uh, so I had the opportunity to do that. And, and I did the business side and, and my former wife did the creative side. And, and she did an extremely great job. But that's similar to she did the the imaging of Destiny Shaw, my former wife did that. I didn't get involved with the imaging part. Um, I, I, my areas, I focus on where my passion and love is, and that is the business side. Business side. And so, uh, well, I guess we've, we've spoken about the music side, and then I, then I do wonder then how the getting into the music industry, how, how did that op door open for you? Well, you know, when I left Xerox, uh, I then had the opportunity to be the first Black in America to sell MRI and CT scanners. Uh, you know, any of you know MRI and CTs, you know, that's a very sophisticated tool. Uh, I had the opportunity to sell the first generation. So when you fill, sell first generation diagnostic imaging, you then have to be extremely scientific in explaining the technology. Uh, you can't just go in with sales skills. You, you have to also learn the technology. Uh, and yeah. so I had to work extremely hard. That wasn't you know, a skill set that I just instantly had. I had to work hard on learning the technology and being able to message and explain it. 
Um, and then I left because once you're successful in the medical in most places, you, you get all of these companies coming after you that want you to work there. Um, okay. And so then I went to Johnson & Johnson. Uh, I was a, with Phillips Medical Systems uh, based in Eindhoven. Hoven. Uh, and then I went to Philip, uh, Johnson & Johnson as a neurosurgical specialist. Um, and then this thing called managed care happened in America where you had to look at the cost of procedure, the cost of, of medication, the cost of operating costs. And the neurosurgeon called me into his office and told me he couldn't use my instruments anymore because of the cost and because he was mandated by the hospital to reduce his cost per procedure. I called my former wife and said, I couldn't do this anymore. Now, what I'm about to say is important because many of us in life will get to a defining moment when we say, I don't wanna do this anymore. What's important for you to know is you don't just instantly jump ship. You transition. That moment I knew I didn't wanna do it but I knew I would transition into the music industry, not jump ship. And I picked the music industry because now you know my background, you understand why when I had to transition and thought about what do Matthew Knowles want to do with his life now, that music would be a part of. Although Beyonce was just beginning in music, but music had always been a foundation of my life. And so that transition went back to college, wow. took courses, music management, music production, uh, publishing, <laughs> went to every seminar in America that I could get to. Wow. Also to build relationships, which is critically important, in the, especially in the music industry. Most people think that, uh, you know, I left to work with Beyonce. That's partly true, but not the majority true. The first artist that I signed and got a record deal was not Destiny's Child. There's a rapper named Lil O with MCA Records. If you know your history of music, you know MCA Records in the yeah. 90s was the number yeah, one. Urban record label to work for. They had Jody C, they had Puffy, they had Mary J. Blige, you know, they had Heavy D. New edition, yeah, new edition, yeah, yeah Jody Watt. New edition. Yeah. Uh, so to get it, you know, that was my first record deal that I got for an artist. The second record deal I got was Destiny Charlotte Sony. So, so people don't really know the history. And that's why I do these type of uh, uh, interviews. Is, you know, if somebody even said, ah, I want to talk about Destiny Shaw, we said, well, I'm not interested. Uh, look out for the documentary. That's what I would have said. <laughs> uh, but if you, you know, I enjoy uh, just bringing awareness to, to, to my life and the steps and decision-making and the failures and successes. Yeah. I think one of the things that is really key that you mentioned was the that getting the knowledge before you go in, um, because the, it, the the you know the going to the seminars, doing your research, going and getting um, uh, upskilling yourself before m moving into an industry like the music industry, where 
we have spoken to lots of artists from the 90s who have also had the same experience of given contracts, signing away their publishing and, and ending up broke without recognizing or knowing anything. And, and, and they'll always say, look, we came from the hood, we didn't know anything and we were given this opportunity and then we are, you know, we trusted the lawyers and everyone, but the money disappeared. And then, and, but you said you transitioned. So it was like, well, let me upskill myself because I need to understand what I'm dealing with, especially with the publishing. Um, did you think that the more you knew about the business side and things, did you find that the industry were less, less hesitant to deal with you because they think, well, he knows a little too much from the outside or how, how did you? No, it was just the opposite. Manager? It was actually just the opposite. Uh, wow. You know, there's a thing in the, the, the music industry um, that parents uh, are just viewed in a different way. Uh, um, they're not viewed in a positive light for the most case. Uh, and, and I understand it because I uh, ran, ran a record label for years. Um, and, and the thoughts are that parents get very, very emotional. Uh, and uh, in many cases, that's correct. Many, many cases. Uh, I, one of my life lessons and one of the things that I teach in the classroom is he who gets emotional will make poor decisions. Mm. Uh, and, and so, you know, when I got into the music industry, you had Brandy mother, uh, you had Usher's mother, uh, you had Joe Jackson, uh, you had parents, you know, that had major artists. So uh, yeah. there was a perspective, uh, perception rather, uh, of these parents uh, as being not knowledgeable, uh, being, again, emotional and troublemakers. Uh, and, and so that was what was thought. Uh, many, 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 many times I never even said I was Beyonce's father. Uh, I just said I was the manager of Destiny Child so that that perception wouldn't enter into someone's mind, but look at my performance. Now in the music industry, there's something amazing that happens. Once you're successful, then everybody says you're genius. <laughs> and everybody wants to do the way you did. And so I went through that, that process and um, you know, then people began to say, wow, we don't, we, why didn't we do it that way? Because I went into the music industry where the music industry were record labels, selling records. I went into it with, I'm in a branding and endorsement and sales business. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the record business because I want my artists to be way more than just music. Music will be the conduit, the foundation of the brand but we will take the brand outside of music once we built our core audience because the core audience is critical and you have to have expertise in knowing how to define and know your core audience. But once you have built that, then you, I can sell your clothing line. I can sell you movies. I can sell you dolls. I can sell you these other things that continue to build the brand and at the same time, bring financial reward. So you'd already thought that way, because a lot of times, a lot of the, the um, executives or, or artists 
is after they've been successful, they start to get offers for stuff. But then, you know, when someone's bringing stuff, you don't really have, you know, if it's not on your radar, you don't really have sort of the control of, a, of what it is. But you're saying that you went in thinking about branding and everything more so than just how many records we're going to be selling. Records was the core business. Uh, and it's from records. That's why when I hear artists say, oh, I hate the record label, uh, they make all the money. Well, first of all, they gave you a loan. And so you wouldn't even be here talking had they not given you the loan called an advance. Uh, it's really, well, no, there's advance, you gotta pay it back. Uh, but understanding that when you understand the record industry, you understand that artists seldom are gonna make money selling records how it's been designed from day one is the record industry. And rightfully so. If I invest in Apple, you know, I, I, you know, I want to get my money back, right? Yeah. And, and so that core audience, though, that the record label helped build, now I can go sell them other things. Now I can go market other things. Now I can go market my live touring. And I can market radio, I mean, uh, television and movies and dolls and toys and computer games and merchandise and all sorts of things. But I understood that going into it because I came from corporate America. So I had a different headset. I remember, um, yeah, because I remember how I interviewed Don Robinson from Invoke, but even Donnell Jones, and he says that, yeah, he never... He didn't think he ever made any money from the face, but he made all his money as because as, he was a writer and he owned almost 75% of his publishing and the touring. And 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 it's almost as if most artists, unless they do the diamonds, you know, get to sell 10 million plus albums, very rarely see the money, but they also assume that the labels were the bad people and their managers and stuff. But it was very interesting that you had a very different perspective that look. They're giving you a loan. They're investing in you. If you don't do well, then they lose the money. But, you know, how do you take advantage of the, the opening and opportunity they've given you? And that's why one of the reasons I think I succeeded uh, is because presidents of Columbia Records, uh, they loved me because I wanted them to win. We were in a partnership. I understood it. And by the way, when I talked about all the revenue streams, I left out the publishing. Uh, back then, we were selling CDs. And so yeah. if you wrote on the song, then you got paid on the manufacturing, not to sales. When they manufacture it, because intellectual property works that way. Wow. It's a little different now that we're in the streaming world. Uh, yeah. So also, if you're a songwriter, you made a significant amount of money. And it's only fair that if they put up the money to get this started and invest, that they get their money back that they made a significant return on their investment. That's how business work. And so when you see artists and managers that have this hate relationship, they don't understand it. You know immediately they don't understand it because they haven't gotten the knowledge to understand how this works. Did, knowing the, about the publishing side, did you then encourage the artists you, you had signed, Beyonce and the rest, to get into writing because that is a revenue stream that is important to, to hold on to and to develop I, that side. I, what I encouraged, and again, transitional, 
I encourage them on the first time they were in the studio to learn as much as they could. They weren't ready yet to write songs. Learn the process. Have your eyes and ears wide open to learn the process of songwriting. Because it shouldn't be, I'm doing this because I want to make money. It should be, you're going to hear over and over from me, knowledge is power. You do it because you understand the process. And that's what makes you great at it. So initially, from the first album, Destiny's Child didn't write any songs. Um, the first album of Destiny's Child, but they learned the process. So on the second album, they wrote more. They learned the process. Now they're producing and in, in the studio, and they now producers as well as songwriters, understanding the process, constantly growing, gathering and gaining more knowledge. That's what makes greatness. Yeah. The, the other part of it, though, is talent. You can't replace talent. You know, uh, that's, you know, because learning, like Michael Jackson, I always will remember that they said when he was five and six, he'll be in, Barry Gordy said he'll just be in the studio watching and learning. And, and, and you know, when everyone else is playing, he'll just be learning everything. So it was no surprise that he was both an excellent businessman, but also just how he took off with his career and, and, and how you then, in a way, directed your first Destiny Child to sort of learn and follow and learn and, and not just rely on, on, on just the fame. Was it a battle at all? Because I don't know, because, you know, once I have no, you know, I, I'm, we're on this side, so I don't know, was it easy for, for the artist to listen and understand what you were saying and actually take that knowledge on board? Well, it was an easier process because, uh, you know, Beyonce, Kelly, Kelly lived with us. Okay. Uh, Solange uh, wrote, most people aren't aware, Solange wrote a number of hit songs for Destiny Child and Beyonce. She's a wow. prolific songwriter. Uh, but if you're living in a household where your dad, think about it. You're living in a household. Your dad is the number one sales rep in the world. And your mom makes a million dollars with the top hair salon in the world. You're going to learn a lot about business, right? So yeah. they, had the, they had the opportunity that most artists don't have and uh, to grow up in a, a, a family that entrepreneurship. And so you learn just by being in the family. And, and yeah. just listening as a kid at, at the, the, the dinner table, uh, you know, talk, parents talking about their day and sharing that, sharing the successes. But we also shared the failures um, wow. because we always wanted people, wanted our kids. And, and even when I teach and even when I speak, I also talk about the failures uh, because failures are always and mistakes yeah. um, are opportunities to grow. Not a reason yeah. to quit, right? Why did you decide not to have? Because back in uh, back in the late mid nineties, we did have people like Mary J. Blige, Tony Braxton. So we had very successful female artists. Brandy, you mentioned earlier. Why did you decide to come up with a group instead of just having 
you know, Beyonce on her own and Solange and, and, and just having them as solo artists? Because I didn't start out managing Beyonce. Uh, uh, Beyonce started out in a girls group called Girls Time. Um, and she was in that group for two years before I even got involved. All I did is drop her off at practice and pick her up at practice. Um, I'm the number one sales rep at Xerox. I don't, I'm not thinking about a girl. I'm thinking about my next deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, it was only until earlier I talked about failure and mistakes, the opportunity to grow. It was only when they lost on Star Search uh, that it got my attention uh, and that a change needed to happen. And then I transitioned, went back to school and stuff. And at the same time, what was happening for me personally was managed care in the medical field. And I knew I didn't want to do that anymore after 20 years and, and transition and got the record deal for Lil O at MCA. And, uh, then full time got into the music industry. And, and once in the music industry, then we got into the apparel industry uh, with House of Darion and Darion. Didn't know anything about apparel. But again, use the skills I learned before. Um, yeah. Learn those fundamental skills. Uh, and that's why if anybody wants to be in a business side of music, if you're not taking classes and learning terminology, understanding the culture of the music industry, you're probably going to feel that. Uh, you just can't one day show up in a new industry. You've got to put in the work. Um, yeah. And I work, you there in London, I work with two London-based schools. I work with LCCM I'm on advisory board. I'll be teaching there uh, in the next months. Uh, and I work with Point Blank Music School, uh, both based right there in London. And, and Point Blank, uh, in a month, I'll be my next class, uh, Fundamentals of the Music Industry in a Digital Age which would be online. So people listening, all they have to do is go online and point blank music school and see the class. Yeah, I mean, and, and, I'll, and I'll be sure to make sure that um, all, all this is, is, is detailed so that because we do get a mix of those who are, are fans of the music industry. And then you have others who actually are thinking about how to, to, to succeed. But then we, we get so much of the horror stories that we almost think that you, you lose before you even start off. And, 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 and I think that sense of knowledge and learning and, and understanding. Um, but but, but not, let, me, let, me, let me stop yeah. you there, because you made a very valid point. If I open an ice cream shop, if I don't understand how ice cream is made and how to sell ice cream, the equipment that I need, to, then I'm gonna lose before I start. Because I have the knowledge, right? Yeah. But probably happened one day I walked in and all the ice cream is melted because I didn't know how to refrigerate. Yeah. I mean, in anything we do to be really accomplishing, great at it, you have to have the knowledge. Uh, it's just not a music thing. It's, this is a life thing. Yeah. D did you find then that the most successful... And I, and I do wonder then, how did you manage, how much did you get involved when it comes to getting 
the right type of producers and writers for the group because it was very competitive in the 90s with different groups and labels and, 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 and airplay. So the fact that you came from the business side, that we're looking at the creative side, how much of that did you get involved in, in, in the, well, to really help the shape? One thing, yeah, the one thing we haven't talked about here, uh, and I'm just checking to see, because I have another uh, okay. scheduled Zoom call. I want to stay on here. Uh, yeah, I have about three minutes here. One, one of the things uh, we haven't touched on and talked about is you made it uh, a comment on it, talent. Um, you know, Beyonce was given uh, amazing, amazing, amazing gift. Uh, and she's extremely passionate to this day about her craft. Now, you ask, how did I get these producers? Anybody that's ever listened to Beyonce or saw her perform knew early on one day she would be a star if she continued to develop and work at it. So it went hard to get producers. Uh, I mean, these guys are looking for the next big thing, cinema tape, and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I want to work with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah, definitely appreciate the uh, the time. I, I know that you you know you you've got quite a bit going on. It's been, I think, it's been really fascinating, educational. Just the the the, the knowledge you've dropped about you know learning the vision, um, putting in the work, um, because that's that's is going to be really key, and, and also not making excuses and not letting um, your past or anything sort of hold you back. I mean, I. I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist um, working with uh, on the on the, on the 19s here in the UK, and a lot of times when I you know work with young people who are struggling with what has happened in the past or their parents, and they blame that and saying, well, what's the point of living and stuff? And so you have to sort of help them refocus and reshape their vision and and look forward and have a, a purpose. And you know, hearing your sort of story and and having. If anyone has an excuse to say, well, look at where I, I came from the South and look at how we, we didn't have money and use that as an excuse, um, but you didn't. You used that almost as fuel to say, you know what, there's nothing that I can't accomplish. And, and people will say, well, what's the evidence he did that? Not only your success, but when you look at the success of your children and your family, it's also evidence that if you just continue to breathe that, that's something, positivity and hard work and ethic that's something that can really um, take us to that next step. So I really well, appreciate it. I thank you for working. I thank you for working. Uh, the work that you do, uh, it's important work. I, I know we, we, we always talk about health and wellness, but we always have a re reluctance and hopefully that's changing. I'm seeing it change to talk about mental health and the yeah. importance of mental health. Uh, and we all, including myself, have struggles. Um, you know, I've spent 10 years going to therapists to, to talk about the traumas that uh, I had in my childhood that affected me in my adult years. Uh, yeah. But getting a grasp and understanding that, uh, again, I said I would say it over and over, knowledge is power. And, yeah. and getting that knowledge of understanding uh, the triggers and the challenges of life. So I thank you for what you do, sir. Oh, thank you, thank you. And I, and in fact, I just remembered that you mentioned therapy, and I know that's something 
as men, especially black men, that's something that we we sort of run away from and think now I'll talk to my, my my guy or talk to the pastor and 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 not seek professional help. So I just hope that's an awareness that we can continue to spread, for, especially for black men, to, to, to talk. Well, thank you. My assistant is calling me as we speak. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, for those that want to find out more about what I'm doing or book me to speak at an engagement, which I enjoy doing, uh, just simply go to my name, MatthewKnowles.com. Uh, you can find out where I'm teaching, where I'm speaking, if you like for me to speak or any other information. So, again, thank you for this time and have a wonderful day. Will do. Thanks for watching. Please remember to subscribe to the channel, but most importantly, to press the notification bell so that you can be notified when we do have a new interview. Loads to come, but thanks a lot for watching. Mm -hmm.